Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. He was born in 1834. He was born again at age 15 and started pastoring at age 17 in England. Before he reached his 20th birthday, he was preaching to thousands of people every week. The church that he pastored there in London eventually grew and grew and built the Metropolitan Tabernacle to, to accommodate the congregation. It would seat 6,000 people and there was standing room for another thousand. And for 30 years until his death, that place was crammed full of people every morning, every Lord's Day morning and evening and other times during the week often. People would linger outside the windows straining to hear uh, Spurgeon open the scriptures and preach God's word. Thousands of people came to trust Christ through the ministry of Spurgeon and, and Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon was incredibly gifted by God and God blessed him with the tremendously fruitful ministry. Uh, for much of his ministry, there would be 25,000 uh, copies of his sermons printed and distributed every week around London. He published a monthly magazine called The Sword and the Trowel that, that lasted for many years. He, he wrote books. He wrote tracts. He started the college to train pastors and evangelists. He, he started many churches and they launched many missions out of Met Tab and, 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 and particularly to the Jews and particularly into Germany. Lots of mission work. They started orphanages, they had ministries to the blind, ministries to the homeless, ministries to the police, ministries to battered women, they had coffee house ministries, they had, had some almost 70 kind of peripheral ministries that were connected to Metro, Metropolitan Tabernacle. His was an extraordinarily God-blessed life, if you know anything about him. He was used mightily by the Lord. But there was another side to Charles Spurgeon. There was a darker side to Spurgeon. He fought a lifelong battle with despair and discouragement. He, he, he suffered from tremendous chronic physical pain, particularly towards the end of his life. He had gout and, and, and uh, rheumatism and, and other things that just racked his body. His wife was semi-invalid most of his ministry and hardly was ever able to go here and preach. And so he was caring for her. But it also, in addition to those things, he had these intense periods of dark, dark despair and depression. And he writes about it. And in, in his, his work, Lectures to My Students, he's speaking to his students in the college there. And he has a chapter called The Minister's Fainting Fits. Listen to how he describes this. He says, fits of depression come over most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are, always, are not always so vigorous. The wise not always ready. The brave, not always courageous. The joyous, not always happy. I know by most painful experience what deep depression in spirit means. Being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between. On another occasion he wrote to a friend of his and he said, I have never lost my calm faith in God, but at times I have been so depressed that the cable has been strained to the limit. 
How could this gifted, fruitful, courageous, often generally jovial servant of God experience and know this kind of soul anguish? Well, I just say he's in good company. There are many people throughout church history and in scripture who, who know this. We saw this in Psalm 6. I know you remember every psalm we preached from the Psalms. This would have been over a year ago. But Psalm 6, we saw David in his own dark night of the soul. This is how he described himself. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. The man after God's own heart. Stark despair. And we see it in Elijah this morning. Last week when... When we finished chapter 18 with this, was this awesome scene of, on Mount Carmel, the big showdown and, and the prophets of Baal are defeated by the Lord through Elijah. And, and several of you anticipated chapter 19 knowing what was coming and you, there were a number of folks that came up to me afterwards and asked, how is it possible that Elijah could go from that victory to this, this despair in chapter 19 so quickly? And, David understood it. He would have understood it. Spurgeon understood it. And I think if we're honest, we can too. Uh, Most of us know what it's like to quickly go from faith to fear, from courage to just near collapse. We've experienced that. And you remember what James says, Elijah was a man like us. He was of like passions with us. And to be honest, I can more easily identify with the Elijah of Mount Horeb where he's in total despair than I can with the Elijah on Mount Carmel. That kind of courage. That's harder for me to identify with. I, I get it. I, I know personally how someone can go from this from the high mountaintop to the valley. I call it Monday. <laughs> uh, and and we we we've we experience that. Um and, and I would say that the more you are involved in God's work, the, the more risk there is for this kind of, of despair. And listen, all despair and depression is not created equal. There are other causes for depression and despair. And so I, I, I don't have time to elaborate on that. But this kind of work where you're in the middle of God's work. Because why is it hard? Because God's work is people work. And people disappoint us. They, they, they start well, they finish badly. They make promises, but they don't keep them. They go, they go two steps forward, or one step forward, two steps back. And they don't just disappoint us, we disappoint ourselves. We're the worst sinners we know. And, and, and so we, that, that's hard. And so all these things put together make people work very draining. It's, it's good work, it's, it's honorable work, it's rewarding, happy work, but it's hard. Burnout is always a possibility. Paul struggled with this. Second Corinthians, we see this wrestling, temptation to lose heart. John Stott says the occupational hazard of Christian discipleship and ministry is discouragement. It just comes with the territory. And well, my goal this morning, listen, it's not to address all of the complicated issues related to discouragement and depression. This chapter is not a how-to manual on dealing with d- discouragement. That's not, that's not what this is. It has much to say about it, as we'll see, but that's not the whole point. What's the, what's the point of this passage? Why is it here? Well, Elijah's 
near burnout, it serves as a backdrop to highlight God's unstoppable purpose. That comes through very clearly here. And again, this is where we have to be careful. We want to, we can read this chapter through the lens of our experience. And certainly this has much to say to us in our experience. But we want to hear the thrust of what God is communicating. Why this chapter is included in the Bible. And so, so again, the central figure in the king's narrative is not Elijah, but it's God. And what we're seeing here is that this is God, his purpose that cannot be thwarted. That's what is so important here. And it's, it's the writer he's doing is connecting the dots between Elijah's weakness and his despair. And he's connecting that to God's purpose for his people that will not be stopped no matter how weak his servants are. And so the big idea is this, is when times of discouragement and burnout come, the path to, to recovery involves a deeper understanding of God and his purpose. That's what we'll see this morning. All right, so what's, what's God's medicine for the discouraged heart? Maybe you're here this morning, and this is you. What, is God, what does God offer? The first thing that we see is to come to grips with your frailty. Come to grips with your frailty. Not, not one of us is exempt from the experience of discouragement and despair. So admit it. I mean, if this passage teaches us nothing else, it's this. Is if it can happen to Elijah, it can happen to us. You're not stronger than Elijah. You're not more courageous than him. None of us would be. We're not immune from, to, to fear, to burnout like this. Well, what do we expect? We expect after this victory on Mount Carmel, the, the prophets of Baal are defeated and killed, and God has shown himself to be glorious and the only Lord, the only God. We expect someone to ask him, what are you going to do now after you've defeated the prophets of Baal? And he would say something like this, I'm going to Disney World, or whatever the 8th century B.C. version of that is. I, I don't know, but we expect... That, we, we, we expect Mr. My God is Yahweh. That's what his name means. We expect him to be standing tall, big grin on his face. After all, the hand of the Lord was upon him. That's how the chapter 18 ends. We expect to see the nation turning their hearts back to the, to the Lord. We, we expect to find Ahab repenting and kicking Jezebel out, that Baal-worshipping priestess, queen. Kicking idolatry out the door. But we don't see those things. We don't see widespread national revival. We don't see Ahab suddenly growing a spiritual backbone. We don't see Elijah celebrating with a parade. Instead, we find Ahab tattling and Jezebel threatening and, and Elijah running. That's where we sit. Let's pick it up with me. Chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Notice real quick, this is just a side note. He doesn't tell Jezebel what the Lord had done. He doesn't even mention the tremendous display and the water on the altar and the fire coming down and burning it up. He says, this is what Elijah did. He killed the prophets. Verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You, you think Mount Carmel might humble Jezebel, but it, it just further enrages her. She's a sore loser and, that, and they can be vicious. And, and she's more committed than ever to kill, to find and to kill 
Elijah. And so, and her track record for killing God's prophets makes this not an idle threat. She slaughtered hundreds of prophets of the Lord. Verse 3, we see Elijah's response. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, if you have your map from last week, you see the what we're talking about here. So you see the, the, him running from uh, probably Jezreel all the way down to Beersheba at the very bottom of the map, uh, the wilderness of Beersheba. And so this is, this is some 120 miles that he ran um, hightailing it out of Ahab's and, and Jezebel's jurisdiction here. And so all the way to the very southern tip of Judah, Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He goes further, 15 miles or so farther south, and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's ready to resign from his prophetic office. I quit. He's ready to resign from life itself. He, he wanted to die, but he didn't want to die at the hands of Jezebel. He says, I'm no better than my fathers. His fathers are his prophetic predecessors. He's saying they didn't make any significant difference in in the spiritual life of the nation. And neither has he. It's all for nothing. He should have been able to do so much more, but he didn't. So verse 5, and he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake, of, a, a, cake, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Now, again, God's response to Elijah is amazing. He doesn't give him death. He gives him cake. He, he doesn't rebuke him. He allows him to sleep. He gives him food and water. And, and that cake of bread isn't there just to feed him. It's there to remind him. Remember chapter 17, God providing miraculously for Elijah's needs through the, through the widow at Zareph, of Zarephath. And then it was a cake of bread. And it's just this reminder, God, Elijah, I've provided for you and I will. I'll meet your needs. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for Forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And before we go on, let me, let me just make a couple observations here from Elijah's experience with despair. What can we learn from this man like us who collapsed like us? We, we see here the, the course that despair sometimes takes, and we see some of the causes that sometimes lead to it. So a common course of discouragement. We'll kind of... Speak to us, but we'll see it through the lens of Elijah's experience. First, a common course of discouragement is that we lose perspective. We lose perspective. Elijah lost sight of the big, big picture. He, he, the, the, the short-term victory on Carmel, as wonderful as a win as it was for the Lord, it did not mean that the war was over. There was more work to be done, and Elijah lost that, that bigger picture, that broader perspective. And we can do this too, folks. We, we lose perspective. We forget that, that there's a bigger war being fought, and we make too much of our victories, and we make too much of our losses. 
And we need this mental sobriety to to remember that the battle never ends for the believer. Well, it, it will end one day, but until the Lord returns, it's, it's going to go on or until we die. So we lose perspective. Second thing that often happens is we lose our commitment to follow God's word. Elijah stopped letting God's word direct his path. After hearing Jezebel's threat, Elijah, the text says, became afraid, arose, ran for his life. And that's very different from... Earlier, remember in chapter 17 and chapter 18, the the word of the Lord would come to Elijah and then Elijah would go. Five times there we see the word of the Lord came, he went. Word of the Lord came, he went. And But here it's not the word of the Lord that gets Elijah moving, it's the threat of this queen. And we face the same temptation, don't we? We... We, will we order our lives by God's authority or will, we, or will we order our lives by something else? Will we let emotions, fears, uh, wants, desires, threats, the opinions of others, will we let these direct our lives or will we let God's word? As a life that, that's, tethered, that's not tethered to God's word will, will eventually drift away from God's will. That's what we see in Elijah, and that's, we, we know that experientially. Third, we, we lose our vision of God's greatness. This will begin to happen. The word for afraid here, it, it probably is really the word saw. He saw the threats. And, and so he saw and he ran for his life. The context makes it clear, I think, and so it's an okay to, to translate it like this. That seeing, seeing amounted to fearing. He run, he's running for his life. He's clearly scared. But Elijah's fear is connected to his taking his eyes off the greatness of God. Remember, as we've seen with Elijah, he's, he's often he's standing before Ahab, boldly, courageously declaring that as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whose presence I stand. He's, he had this awareness of the, the living God's presence. And yet, here that's gone. It, he drops this elevated view of the Lord and he panics. And just say our, our fear, our fears, and particularly our fear of people is inversely proportionate to our view of God. The, the bigger our view of God, the less we're inclined to fear people. And by fearing people, I don't mean just scared, as in this case, but I mean even just to be dominated by the opinions of others. The smaller our view of God, the bigger people can seem to us. So that's another way, another step in this course. Then next, we lose our fight. Elijah flees, and he flees far, all the way to the deep south of Judah, far from Ahab and Jezebel. Now, we don't have a wicked woman named Jezebel that we're running from and that wants to kill us. And I know we have to be careful here. I know we we compare our depression and our circumstances to Elijah's, and they're very different. And so we're mindful of that. But, but we're engaged in spiritual battle. And you, we, we can't forget that. And we, we must face challenges that threaten, our own, our own, threaten God's work in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We've got to be willing to stand up to those things. That, but spiritual discouragement, it makes us ready to turn it, turn it in, to retire from the fight. And that's the last thing. We, we, we throw in the towel. Elijah loses his desire to live. He's, he's not the only person in Scripture to, 
to despair of life. Moses told God, kill me at once. Job wished he'd never been born. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth. Jonah asked that, that, that the Lord would take away his life. Death was better than life to him. These men longed for death, but they didn't take their lives. God sustained them, restored them, brought them out of that pit of despair. But have you ever said, have you ever asked the question, Lord, I've, I've had enough. I've had enough, Lord. Uh, have you been tempted to throw in the towel, to leave your spouse, to leave your job, to leave your church, to leave this life? There, there's hope in the story, as we'll see. That, that when Elijah's there, God deals with him with tremendous patience, grace, and he will with you too. So this is, of course, spiritual discouragement sometimes take, and it looks differently for different people, but what, what leads to this downward spiral? Well, there are a number of factors. There are natural factors and there are spiritual factors, and those two are not unrelated, as we'll see. So some common causes of discouragement, quickly. Four categories. First one is this. We're drained. We're just depleted. I mean, physically, Elijah had been on the run for three years. After the Mount Carmel incident, he tells Ahab to go up and eat and drink. And what is he? He doesn't do that. He goes and prays. Then he runs 17 miles ahead of Ahab to Jezreel. Then he's now running another 120 miles to Beersheba, which would normally be a six-day journey and we don't know how fast he made it by running much of that way. Then another day in the wilderness, and he's going to travel further south to Mount Horeb, so some over 300 miles in total that he's going to be traversing on foot. But we, we know this. When we are physically tired, we are spiritually vulnerable as well. I think that's true for Elijah and for us. Good food, good sleep. These, are, these things are good for the soul. These are wonderful gifts from God that Scripture makes very clear. And we need these things. Because we're weak. We, and this is part of the provision that God gives us to sustain us. We're, we're more prone to discouragement and depression when we don't take care of our bodies. When we eat junk and we, we stay up too late and we don't exercise and we live just kind of sedentary lives. That's just, that's not helping things. So physical depletion is, is a problem, is one of the causes. Emotionally, Elijah had been drained as well. I mean, the, this was a huge letdown after the Mount Carmel event. Now, I, I'm not saying that we're somehow victims of our emotions, that we're just kind of passive puppets, that our emotions just kind of direct our lives. No, our, our, our emotions are, are terrible guides we're not to just blindly follow them and let them move us along, but but they do affect us. They are real. They're God-given. And when we're just depleted, we're susceptible to despair. So that's, that's another recipe, part of the ingredient in the recipe. Spiritually, he was drained. There was He was the object of intense spiritual opposition. It wasn't just this wicked queen Jezebel was, who was after him. The devil was behind her. I mean, this idolatry was demonic. And so, so Satan and his minions, they're, they're against Elijah. And there's a spiritual opposition against Elijah that was, what, that was severe and took a toll on him. Don't minimize that or miss that. 
the, the, so, so, and it takes its toll on us as well. This is why we need to put on God's armor. This is why we need to rely upon God's power, strength. So he's worn out. Are you worn out? Have you been there? Do you need renewed strength? The kind of renewal you need isn't found in vegging out on the couch. That's how we, what we think. Well, we get to, to drain and we think, well, I just need to veg out. Just give me some me time. That's not it. That's not it. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be in, found in playing hours and hours of video games. Like that's gonna recharge your batteries. It's not in catching up on last week's Facebook feed and spending two hours scrolling through all that stuff that you missed because it was a hard week. No, it, I mean there are, there are practical things: eating a balanced diet, eating a good meal, taking a nap, shutting the laptop. Forgetting the Twitter feed, going to bed early, taking a walk, reading God's word, praying, spending time with Christian friends, eating meals together. This is the stuff that, that renews us when we're drained. All right, so we're drained. That's one component. Real quickly, we're disappointed. This is another category. We don't read it explicitly in the text, but I think it's safe to assume that the outcome of karma wasn't quite what Elijah hoped for. He, he was looking for revival. He was hoping for Ahab's repentance, no doubt. His hopes were sky high, but they were dashed to pieces when, when he hears Jezebel's threats. And, you know, we, we, we have expectations, and when those are not met, they can crush us. And, and circumstances, people, they disappoint us, and this is one of the causes. So we're disappointed. Third, we're isolated. Elijah's been virtually alone since we were introduced to him. If he's, if he's indeed a man like us, then he needs fellowship. He needs people. We were made by God to live in community with one another. And he's, he's alone all the time. He leaves his servant behind, goes off by himself, not to pray, not like Christ. He goes off to kind of have a little pity party. He's the host and the only invited guest. And, and he, he goes off by himself. And I just say to us, if you're, if you're tired, if you're discouraged, isolation is not what the doctor ordered. You, you need others to encourage you, lift your spirits. We have a tendency in times of discouragement and despair to pull away from people, to stop going to church, to, to turn in on ourselves. That's very natural, but that's very wrong and unhelpful. Finally, we, we believe half-truths. Elijah, he, he believes these half-truths, which amount to whole lies. And, and they trigger in him these feelings of self-righteousness and self-pity and self-importance. And we'll see in verse 10 when we get there, Elijah's complaint to the Lord. But it basically, it's this. And part of it's true, but it's not complete. He says, yes, the, the people did forsake the Lord. What he doesn't say but some turned back to him. Yes, the altar was destroyed, but, but it was rebuilt. Yes, God's prophets were killed, but it was the prophets of Baal that were wiped out on Mount Carmel. He has this kind of selective memory here. He's only remember, remembering the bad stuff. It's not, it's not completely true. He, and he thinks he's the only one left, verse 10. And the, and the age-old battle between the seed, the seed of, of 
the woman in the seat of the serpent, Elijah thinks he's the last one in the line. If he dies, God loses. That's how he's, that's this confession and complaint to the Lord. But he's forgotten some things. He's forgotten about the line of David. He's forgotten about God's faithfulness to keep his promises and preserve his people. He's forgotten about Obadiah. Remember Obadiah? He's forgotten about the hundred prophets that were hidden away in a cave. He's forgotten, and and God tells him, there are 7,000 others in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, he's believing these half-truths. That's a recipe for despair for us as well. We, We rewrite history. We make judgments on how things really are based upon how we feel. And that's always dangerous. And we, we can get this skewed view of reality. And of our own self-importance. So it comes out in this way. In the context of a church. This is my, how, how it might come. Nobody else in this church cares about evangelism. Nobody. Why doesn't anyone else here. Why isn't anyone else here committed to pray? Why doesn't anyone else here care about the poor? If only other people gave to missions like I give, then we'd be able to do so much more. So this is, this is, that, this is the same root. And our pride can lead to despair. But it all begins with these kind of half-truths that we believe and hold on to. So we need this sober assessment of ourselves and our circumstances. So this is the first point. This is the first thing we need. We need to, we need to come to grips with our weakness, our frailty. We are, we are not as strong as we think we are. And, and we need to embrace our weakness so that it causes us to depend upon the Lord. That Paul gives a warning, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And we need to be reminded of that here. But be encouraged. Our weakness is not, is not an obstacle to God. It's not a hindrance to him. He still accomplishes his purposes, and that's what we see. And this is the next thing we need. We need to open your eyes to what God is doing in the world. So Elijah's headed for Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. The echoes of God's dealing with Moses there should, should be loud and clear here. This is where God showed himself to Israel, particularly to Moses. This is where God's glory was revealed. This is where God's word, his law was given to his people. And so he reaches Mount Horeb and text says, verse 9, he came to a cave and lodged in it. Now some some commentators think this is the cleft in the rock that Moses hid in. That's possible, but we can't prove that. But Elijah, different than Moses, he's not there to experience more of God. That's not why he goes to Mount Horeb. He goes there to make his complaint known to God. To resign from his prophetic office here. And then, as he's there, God speaks to him. And behold, the word of the Lord, verse 9, came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? There's a challenge in God's word to Elijah there. Now, it could be that he's saying, What are you doing here, not back in Israel, where I sent you? Or it could be that he's saying, why have you chosen Mount Sinai? Now, God is not ignorant. He, he's not fishing for information from Elijah. He knows Elijah's heart better than Elijah knows Elijah's heart. So he knows why he's there. And what he's doing is he's challenging Elijah. Speak your mind. Make your case before me. And this is what happens. So, and what we'll find is Elijah has not made much progress in the 40 days it took to get to Mount Sinai. 
He's still in the pit of despair. So he complains to the Lord. Verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. Again, most of this is true as far as it goes. It's not the whole story. He's speaking as if Mount Carmel never even happened. Those incredible events, like he doesn't even mention them. And at the core of his complaint is his grievance with God himself. You get that? He's, he's got this grievance. Lord, you've not treated me well by allowing me to experience these things. That's the core of what he's saying. Well, God doesn't verbally respond to him. He doesn't try to argue him out of his perspective. Instead, he summons, summons him to to an encounter that parallels Moses' encounter with the Lord in the same place. Verse 11, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And he shows Elijah these tremendous signs of his power and presence that are well known to show God's might and and presence. First sign, he sends this great, strong, powerful wind, strong enough to tear Tear mountains apart to shatter rocks in verse 11. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the second sign, an earthquake. But again, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then a third sign, fire. Fire from heaven. But the Lord was not in fire. The Lord, He's not limited to these means. He doesn't always work in these ways. And again, the parallels between Mount Carmel and, and God's dealings with Moses and Mount Sinai. And then after these dramatic signs, there came, verse 12, the sound of a low whisper. We know a still, small voice. (laughs) And we're not told what Elijah, or we're not told that the Lord is in the gentle whisper specifically, but we can infer by Elijah's response, covering his face in reverence, that he shows that he knows God is in that voice. And we're not told what, if anything, Elijah heard, what the gentle whisper communicated. It seems that the message is more in the form of the message, not so much the content of the message. He's saying there's more to God than wind and fire and earthquakes. There's more to him than that. Elijah needs this, this new vision of God, this right perspective of the Lord. He doesn't immediately grasp what God is communicating through this. So again, the Lord asks the question, verse 13, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. And Elijah's response is the same in verse, as verse 10. He, he hasn't moved forward in his understanding yet. He's still stuck in this gloom. And so, you know, spiritual discouragement, it's not It's not always fixed with, take this Bible verse and swallow. Listen to this sermon. Read this book. Get over it. It's not it. God is patient. But He's persistent. He wants you back to Himself. And He won't stop till He has you back. So this time, the Lord responds differently to Elijah's complaint. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't even address it, really. He gives him a new commission. New charge. And he sends him back into the fight. But in a very different way. Verse 15 he says. Go return on your way. You know there's a, there's a time. And despair and discouragement. When you 
realize that the only way to overcome that is to get back involved in what God has called you to do. You put your hand back to the plow. You use your gifts. You make disciples. You evangelize the lost. You you, you love one another. I've, I've learned this from Howard. I mean... This is one of the reasons he has the men's Bible study on Monday mornings because we can get the blues on Monday and just gets right back in the Word and how God uses that. And so, um, so, so God sends him back to return his way, but he doesn't send him directly to Ahab or Jezebel. He doesn't send him to fight another showdown. That's not it at all. In fact, he's not even going to be the one who wins the victory over Baal. He's just going to start the process. And he, and he calls him to do these three things. He appoints to appoint three men, uh, to anoint these three men. This, this unlikely trio, pagan king, uh, new, a new king for Israel, and, and a new prophet. And this trio that's kind of weird and put together, and it seems kind of out of place. But what this is, this is low whisper kind of working. This is what God's showing Elijah. It's not going to be another showdown. It's not going to be this prophetic call to repentance and some miraculous display of power. This is low whisper kind of working. God's going to undermine the worship of Baal in a different way. And Elijah's all he's got to do is start. So he says, anoint Hazael to be king over Assyria. And in verse 16, anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. Both of these guys are outsiders. They're not part of the royal family. So this would, this would kind of amount to a revolution in the lands. But he says, you, you anoint them. Then he says, anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your place. And this is the plan. Verse 17. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So it's, it's kind of this cryptic way of the Lord telling Elijah, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring this worship of Baal down. But I'm going to do it my way, and it's going to look differently. It's going to come through just a slow and steady elimination of Ahab's family and Baal worshipers. But it's going to happen. God will use Elijah to begin the process, but he'll use others to finish. So God's dealing with Elijah's discouragement by giving him this new perspective on what he's doing and how he works. And we need that too. We, for Elijah, he was part of the plan, but he wasn't the plan itself. This is what God is showing him. He was important, but he wasn't indispensable. And we, we need to remember that, that, that success for Elijah wouldn't be finishing the task, finishing the whole thing. It would be completing and obeying God in the assignment that God gives him. And that's true for us. We don't evaluate our lives, our ministries, based upon our perceived success. It's on faithfulness to what God has called us to as parents it's not successful parenting is not about raising a perfect child it's about obeying the lord and and doing your part and your responsibility to raise your children to love to in the fear and nurture of the lord there's a big difference between those two this is what the lord is reminding elijah verse 18 the lord gives elijah one more piece of information Elijah feels isolated. I'm the only one left. But God tells him, no, verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 7, 
thousand men in a nation of a million plus isn't exactly a power block. Um, but God, it's a remnant. And, it, and that remnant, that faithful remnant is the true hope of the nation. It's just a sign. It's, again, it's pointing to God's faithfulness to keep his promise to his people. And that encourages, that's to encourage Elijah's heart. It's not just physically, you're not alone. It's, it's God hasn't forsaken his promise. He's doing his work. He's, he, God, is, God is accomplishing it. Our pain, our despair, it can make us so myopic. And, and we, we can put on blinders and fail to see the bigger picture of what God is, God is doing. Well, the third point, and, and I, I, I'll just state it and then we'll pick it up next week. I, we want to meet and worship at the table here. But the third thing is walk the path of obedience back from burnout. I'll, I'll just say this. Elijah's back in verse 19. The Lord says, go. He goes. I, didn't, I don't know how he felt. That's not the important thing. He, he, he walks the path of obedience back from discouragement. He says, Lord, you say what you say, I will obey. I'm not trusting my feelings. Now your word is my guide again. And he goes and he anoints Elisha as the Lord calls him to in this strange, bizarre kind of scene. And I'll just let you read through that and we'll come back. I'll try to pick this up next week and or next time, and we'll we'll get it back. But again, let me just bring you back real quick. Just look at me for a second. Big idea. What is this showing? When times of discouragement and burnout come, the path to recovery involves a deeper understanding of God and His purpose. That's true for Elijah. That's true for us. I just connect this text with this table in this way. Is that what better way to see? God's God and his purpose more clearly than coming to this table. Um, It's what this table commemorates. Jesus, the the Messiah King, the long-awaited one, the promised one, the one who all these other kings were just shadows and, and pointing towards. It's what this commemorates that gives us the perspective we need to to come out of times of discouragement. Spurgeon, again, said this. He said, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here, and I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and to seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and His infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. This is what we need. We need we need more Christ. We need more gospel and we have it here. Let's pray. Father, do help us as we come. I pray that if there's there is anyone who's weary and discouraged and despairing today, I pray that the peace speaking blood of Jesus will 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 be of tremendous comfort and encouragement to them as they come and as they taste the bread, as they taste the cup. Lord, that you would use these elements to remind us that our transgressions have been forgiven if we are in Christ. And that that would would change everything for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.